from St. John's Gospel, Jesus said to her, Mary, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Hey, I'll give you a nickel if anybody knows the Greek to that. Anybody know it? Christus Aneste. No? I'm in the wrong church. I'm kidding. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about, tonight is the vigil, and if you know your New Testament, you know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we read from Mark a moment ago, but I'm going to spend some time in John tonight and explain to you how John tells a story because there's, there's some details in there that are absolutely crucial. But before I dive into that, let me just say one thing, and it's very blunt and <laughs> to the point. Today is the feast of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? And let me just say this, point blank, if it didn't happen, then you're wasting your time. And so am I. And in fact, St. Paul says this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then you are still in your sins and your faith is a waste of time. So everything hinges, everything the entire truth of the Christian faith hinges on the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it didn't happen, then friends, you're wasting your time. But if it did happen, and I commend, commend to you that it did, then if Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it is the most important event in all of human history. And quite frankly, it changes everything. And I'll tell you, amongst friends, that I did not always believe this. When I was a younger man, say, teenager through my early 20s, I didn't believe in any of this resurrection stuff. It was all fairy tale and kind of like, you know, Santa Claus and, you know, the Easter Bunny and all that kind of thing. And I'm also, if you don't know, a left brain uh, engineer by training. I'm a skeptic. In graduate school, I taught statistics and scientific research methodology. So here's the deal, right? If you make a claim like some guy crawled out of the ground, you got to prove it. And I will say this, there is, listen, irrefutable proof that it occurred. There is more proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, historically, than that Julius Caesar was the emperor of Rome. So there, books and books have been written on this very thing. And I will tell you, for the last six years of my time here at Trinity Episcopal Church, I have spent every Easter Sunday listing out the logical, rational, historical facts. I've done it every year. And if you want historical facts, if you want the proof, go back and when you get home and go on the website and look at the sermon from last year, because that's exactly what I did. I proved the case that the resurrection is true. I didn't always believe that. But I do now. But I realized something last week, and it's this. I don't think laying out the facts does a bit of good. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters. And the reason is because, listen, simple, facts don't convert people. In fact, sermons don't convert people. In fact, preachers don't convert people. I'm not here to convert anybody. I am under no illusion that I'm here to persuade you because it's not my job. That's Jesus' job. Jesus converts people. And that sounds trite, but it's absolutely true. 
And the story is always the same. Always, always, always. It's not about the facts. The facts you can find out for yourself. Take it or leave it. What really happens, listen, Jesus converts the heart in a personal encounter. Always. Always. And in fact, we're going to be talking about this for the next four weeks in our Easter sermon series. Stories about people that meet Jesus and are changed then and now. So I'm not going to give you the facts today. I've done it every year. I'm not doing it again. Today, I'm going to tell you and ask you to consider a story. And really an interaction between two people. Jesus of Nazareth, raised from the dead, and his friend, whose name is Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. And I want you to see how this interaction between the two of them is really a story about you. Two points. First, our blindness to Jesus, point one. Secondly, the power of a name. Point one, our blindness to Jesus, our refusal to see him. Secondly, the power of a name. So let me, let me just, before I dive into point one, let me just give you some background here. Easter day, right, is Sunday. It's the day after the Jewish um, Sabbath. And so what Mary is doing is she is going, she's on route to the tomb to get Jesus and anoint his body for final burial. The reason is he was crucified on Friday. They had to get him in the ground quick before five o'clock when the Sabbath starts. Otherwise, they would be unclean. You can't touch a dead body after five o'clock on Friday night if you're a Jew. And so they kind of put him in the ground quick, waited until Sunday morning, the day after the Sabbath, and she goes back to the tomb to anoint his body. And she goes there, and she looks in, and Mary, Magdala, finds the tomb empty. And so she runs back, and she tells Peter and John. I guess they're still sleeping. I don't know what, maybe they're watching the Netflix or something. I'm not sure what they're doing. But she goes back to Peter and John, and she says to them, Mary does not say he is risen. She says he is stolen. She says, Peter and John, someone's taken his body. I went to anoint him. I went to do everything I need to do for the Jewish rites of burial, and he's gone. Someone's taken him. And you know what? Who can blame her? Because you know what? People that die stay dead, then and now. And in fact, you may not know this, but you probably wouldn't. For us, it sounds you know, outrageous and supernatural and a violation of natural law to have somebody raised from the dead. Yes, that's true. But even in the first century, the worldview is what's called Gnosticism. And to have a dead person become back to life, to us it seems implausible. But to a first century uh, Jew in that culture, it would have been completely absurd. It would have been profane because spirit is ephemeral and bodies are dirty. It's called Gnosticism, in case you want to know. So if to have somebody come back from the dead is not just irrational, which it would be for us, it's something that would be completely undesirable. And so Mary returns to the tomb, and she encounters the strongest evidence for the resurrection. It's interesting. She goes to the tomb, and she sees him. John tells us she sees Jesus there at, in the garden. She sees him, but she doesn't, doesn't see him. I mean, she physically sees him, but she doesn't see him. She doesn't recognize him, for whatever reason. We'll get to that in a minute. 
And in fact, in John's gospel, John says that she, Mary gets to the tomb. She sees a guy there, and she, she says to Jesus, they've taken my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. She thinks he's the gardener. <laughs> and there she is looking at him, staring him right in the face. She has all the evidence that she needs right there. But she's still not convinced. And frankly, neither is anyone else, including you. And that brings me to my first point, and that brings me to the, our blindness. Listen, our blindness to Jesus. You know, first point is Mary. You know, Mary, like all of us, Mary had a past, right? Mary had issues. We don't know what they we don't know what it was, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. So he had healed her, and she followed him. Mary followed Jesus as one of his friends and followers. That's why she's there to bury him in the first place. We don't know what her past was, but we do know that she had one, and her past, listen, her past had blinded her to seeing what's right in front of her. Reminds me of a story of a guy who says to his friends, says, hey, say, Bill, you look depressed. What's the matter? What are you thinking about? Bill says, I'm thinking about my future. And guy says, well, what makes it so hopeless? And he says, my past, right? Our past influences us. You know, the past, you know, the past, we've all got, we've all got a past, right? We don't yet have a future. We do have a present, and we have a past. And some of us, we live in it, right? Some of us stay stuck in it, right? I turned 50 years old in December. I've got friends of mine that still talk about when I call them up, high school. That was in 1987. Some of you weren't even born yet. All of us are affected by our past. Some of us stay stuck in it. And the problem is, all of us, every person in this room, has had things happen to them which hardens us, which makes us bitter. Or things we've done that we regret, that we, we, we feel shame and guilt and remorse. Our pasts, like Mary's, they blind us, don't they? They prevent us from seeing what's right in front of us. I have a friend of mine from Penn State. <laughs> His name is Walt. And uh, Walt uh, told me a story that uh, when, he was, when he was growing up, his mother claimed to be a Christian. She would talk about God, but she refused to work for a living because she was lazy. And uh, he would say, Walt would say that they would get together for dinner, and, you know, they'd all be sitting around, and invariably it would turn, the conversation would turn towards his mother's uh, financial situation, and she would say, well, you know, the Lord will provide. And Walt said to me, and we all knew that was our cue to reach in our pockets and pull out 20 bucks apiece. And that affected him, and he resented her from it. It still affects him. It's still, that still blinds Walt, and it's sort of, to the faith. So let me just ask you a question. What about you? This isn't about Mary. It's not about Walt. It's about you. What about your past holds you back from seeing Jesus? What about your past blinds you to the work that's right in front of you? Because your past can blind you from recognizing him. But so can your presence. It's point two. Back to our story. So there you are. You're Mary Magdalene, and you are there to anoint the body of your friend for funeral. You've got one item on your to-do list for the day. Find your friend Jesus and bury him and put him in the ground. You've got one thing to do, one reminder on your iPhone, right? Get Jesus ready for the grave. But her busyness, Mary's busyness, blinds her 
to Jesus. She goes to him in John's gospel, and she says to Jesus, have you, have you taken the body? She mistakes him for the gardener. She's so wrapped up in what she has to accomplish for the day that she's neglected the fact that he's standing right in front of her. I mean, let me, I'll be perfectly honest with you. I'm a priest, right? So I'm standing here preaching at you on an Easter, Easter day. I'm the rector of this parish. It's a big, it's a big operation. It's a, it's a lot of work. There's a lot of things that go into doing it. I love it. It's a labor of love. No complaints. But I will say this. I will confess to you that sometimes, sometimes, if I'm not careful, I can get so wrapped up in the day-to-day of projects and budgets and salaries and writing sermons and planning a preschool like we're working on, if I'm not careful in my busyness of the day, I take my eyes off the Lord. And he's waving at me, yo, come back. And eventually I do. But we all fall prey to this, right? It's not just me. Somebody once said to me, you know, whatever you're doing, if you're on a Sunday morning, you're not in church, for example, or if you're not saying your prayers, that person said to me, you know, whatever you're doing, that thing becomes your God. <laughs> Hear it? If you're not in church on Sunday, whatever it is that you are doing, that thing is actually taking priority over your relationship with God. It has become your God. My dad used to say to me that life is all about priorities. He was right. And we, certainly I, let the busyness of our lives get in the way. Our task list blinds us. We're too distracted by other things. We focus on small, stupid things, and then we wonder why our lives are small and stupid. So friends, what blinds us to, our, to Jesus and our lives? Our, ba- our past, for sure. Our present busyness. But then finally, there's one more, and there's the future. Mary says to Jesus in the garden as she's confronting him in this interaction, she says, Lord, tell me, or to the gardener, she thinks, tell me where he is so I can take him away. The third thing that, wor- the th- the third thing that blinds Mary from seeing Jesus is her worry. Her worry about getting the job done. Her worry about accomplishing her task. Her worry about it not being solved. Did you ever notice something that worry never actually solves a problem? <laughs> my, uh, my spiritual director in seminary, who is also the diocesan exorcist, figure out that one, but he, uh, he once said to me, he goes, you know, his name is Father Gross. He's dead now, but wonderful guy. He said, you know, worry is trying to solve a problem that has not yet occurred. Brilliant. Worry is trying to solve a problem that has not yet occurred. And we spend so much time in the future, worrying about the future, concerning ourselves with the future, that we forget to live in the past, that we are blinded to God working right in front of us because we're so worried about the what-ifs rather than the what-is. So Mary's past, her baggage blinded her. Her present busyness blinded her, and you, and her future worry blinds us. This me to my second point, Jesus' solution, the power of a name. What changes? What actually does change her? It's not the evidence. It's right in front of her, and she can't see it. In John's gospel, Mary's in this big spin, and Jesus says to her one word. He says, Miriam, Mary, Mary, Mary. He calls her by name, and instantly she sees him. And the reason is because Mary, like you and me, is not converted by the evidence. In fact, the evidence, Jesus himself is standing right in front of her. 
and she's blind to him. What changes her, and what will change you, is a personal relationship with Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Has God ever actually called you? The answer is yes. And it's all, I don't mean necessarily you can hear it. Sometimes you can. Not usually. But where has God ever called you? I mean, it could be, it could be a million things in one day, right? Like the time, that, the time that he placed somebody in your life at exactly the right time to say exactly the right thing that you needed to hear at that moment. Ever happened to anybody here? Of course. Or maybe the, time that, maybe the time that he freed you from an old sin, an old habit that was dragging you down and destroying you and people in your relational circle. And finally, just by God's grace, he's given you the power to overcome it. Ever seen that happen? I have. Maybe it's reading a scripture or hearing a sermon or praying or hearing the music and you are reminded of the assurance that God has for you that there are no coincidences in life, none. Where has God called you? You felt it, I guarantee it. Probably differently than I have, but you have. Where has God called you? Because, see, friends, what converts the human heart is not the facts, it's a call. Every single person in this room is here for one reason, because each one of you and I are searching for victory. We're searching for victory from the past, from past hurts. We're searching for victory from our current struggles. Lord, give me some direction. Man, I'm really floundering here. And we're looking for victory over future worry. Lord, I have no idea what's coming next, but you do. Open the doors that I need to walk through and shut the ones I need to stay away from. You know, there's an old saying, if Jesus calls you by name, there's also an old saying, and I think it might have been Ziggy. You know that little cartoon guy? Anyway. There's an old saying that today, listen, you've heard this before, today is the first day of the rest of your life. That's pretty profound, right? It's an opportunity to change. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. That is true, but it could also be that today is the last day of your life. The point I'm trying to make is that the, the time is short, friends. The stakes are, are too high. Too high. If it didn't happen, then who cares? But if it did happen, the stakes are high. And the life that Jesus offers you is so much better, so much better than the life that you settle for now. And let me just challenge you to just think. To make a decision to follow Jesus. Don't let this Easter be just another one and done. Don't let, this, don't let the victory that Christ gives us, Christus Vincit, Jesus conquers, don't let that pass you by. Life is too short. You must say yes to his call. Here's the question. Will you be a slave to your baggage? Will you be a slave to the busyness of your life? Will you be a slave to the worries and uncertainty and unknowing if a knowability of the future? Or will you be victorious through Jesus? The choice is up to you. The call has been extended. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for Jesus who rose victorious from the dead and offers us a new life. The life we've always wanted, the life we've craved, the life that has escaped us. Free us from the baggage of our past. Free us from the busyness of the present. Free us and give us victory over the worries and uncertainty of the future. Help us to hear 
when Jesus calls us each by name. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.